You, O Lord, are our God. You are Gadosh Israel, the Holy One of Israel, as Isaiah called you so often. You are the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. You are the God who revealed Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. You are the God who pours out His Spirit. You are the only God, the one and true God, and we worship You, and we still ourselves before You to hear, Father, from Your Word tonight. And may these be Your words. And I I do pray, Father, that You make our ears deaf to any words that do not align with Yours, that are not of Your Spirit, of Your Holy Book. And that we would hear, Lord, just the truth. The truth free from tradition. Father, the, the truth free from assumptions. Father, the truth free from all other entanglements that we might bring into the picture. Father, may we be free of that simply to hear Your Word. And we pray that You would teach us truly to be people of Your Word. Jesus people. People who are seeking ever more diligently to rightly handle the Word of truth and to follow after our Lord Jesus and to be lights in this dark place until You come. Bless now the study of Your Word and we pray, Spirit, that You would be our teacher as You have promised to be. Guide us now in Jesus' name. Amen. We are about to finish up the final section of Isaiah's little apocalypse. Remember chapter 24 through chapter 27. We've been looking at this. Um, I, I kind of made an executive decision just to stop at the end of chapter 27. We're only going to do 13 verses tonight. Primarily because this does end a section and then chapter 8 begins a new section of Isaiah. And, and when we say sections, understand that as the prophet compiled his scroll, as he put it all together, this is not necessarily a chronological thing. And he's writing in sections, so much of it is prophecy anyway, that it wasn't coming down uh, day by day by week in Isaiah's life. These are things he was seeing and putting together in the order that the Holy Spirit told him to put it together. When we get to chapter 28, it's at a new, a new time in Isaiah's life, but also a new area of prophecy that he is writing down. So just chapter 27 tonight, I'm going to give you a four-part outline. Uh, If you'd like to jot these things down, you can, just to help follow through uh, as we go through the chapter. And the very first uh, point here in the outline is the recognition of Leviathan. The recognition of Leviathan. Verse 1. In that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword. Even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. In that day, note that. Bible scholars will tend to connect these three descriptions, these three nefarious characterizations, to three nations who were historical enemies of Israel, Assyria would be the first one. When he says in that day the Lord will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent. Well, this word for fleeing is also swift, fast. And so scholars will say, well, that may be a reference to Assyria. Because Assyria itself was serpentine, was located as a country on the fast-flowing Tigris River. And so because the Tigris was a swift river, hence the name Leviathan the fleeing or swift Serpent. 
The next country anti-Israel, against Israel, an oppressor of Israel would be Babylon. Babylon was built in and around the twisting and winding Euphrates. The Euphrates literally wound all through and around Babylon. Babylon was built on the Euphrates with the Euphrates diverted through it and under it and around it. And so, scholars will say, Leviathan, the twisted serpent, is Babylon. And that historically may, may well be. Egypt would be the third oppressor of Israel, a longtime enemy of Israel and maybe yet again in our day. Egypt sits on the shores of the great Mediterranean. Therefore, Egypt perhaps historically is the dragon who lives in the sea. But a couple things to note. Remember, anytime Isaiah says the phrase, in that day, in that day, he's not talking about his day. He's talking about that day. And if you go through, and I did this, go through the book of Isaiah, 40 times he uses the phrase, in that day. And without fail, in each and every one of those 40 times, he is indicating the end of days. And within each one of those statements, when he says, in that day, there are hints and clues and pictures and descriptions that lead us to see what he's talking about at the very end. You know, I read through this little apocalypse again, chapter 24 through 27, thought it through, and I thought, wow, you know, it seems like I'm seeing the end times in everything Isaiah says. And someone's going to call me on this. Rick, you are hung up on the end times. To which I have to reply very honestly, no, I'm in Isaiah. (laughs) And this is what he talks about. And it is is a great focus of this messianic prophet. This prophet who, who really starts to lay it out in terms of Messiah. Messiah's first coming and his second coming. And so all of these in that days do point to, I believe, speak of the end of days. And that is ultimately what he's talking about. But also notice that it says in that day the Lord will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent with his fierce and great and mighty sword. What does Jesus do in Revelation 19 when he shows up on the scene? He slays them with the sword of his mouth. The breath of his mouth. But out of his mouth is coming that that two-edged sword. Which is descriptive in John's writing of the revelation of the word. His word. The active, the true, the living word of God. So, verse 1, speaking of Leviathan historically could be an allusion to Assyria and and Babylon and then the dragon Egypt, or far more likely, it's an allusion to who Leviathan really is. Let's go back to an old friend for a few minutes. Keep your finger there and go back to Job chapter 41. The book of Job. It's really just a few books to the left. Not far to go. And there in chapter 41, we have God's marvelous response to Job's whining and wailing over the previous majority of the book. At the end of the book of Job, the Lord appears in a whirlwind before Job and begins to pepper Job with questions. And all these questions are designed to draw out Job's faith. He's not trying, the Lord is truly not trying to to humiliate Job. Or put Job down, he's trying to help Job understand who it is that Job is truly dealing with. And that is the Lord, his creator. And so in chapter 41, verse 1, the Lord says to Job, Can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook? Or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you? Or will he speak to you soft words? 
Will He make a covenant with you? Will you take Him for a servant forever? Will you play with Him as with a bird? Or will you bind Him for your maidens? Will will the traders bargain over Him? Will they divide Him among the merchants? Can you fill His skin with harpoons? Or His head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on Him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, your expectation is false. Will you be laid low even at the sight of Him? No one is so fierce that he dares to rouse him. Who then is he that can stand before me? Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven, the Lord says, is mine. Whatever is under heaven. And he's reminding Job, I am creator of all things. I have done it all. I have made it all. And everything responds to me. I'm the sovereign God. And who are you that you would question me, Job? If you can't stand before Leviathan, how, Job, do you dare stand before me? Now we read this, and, and the first question, and there are many things in chapter 41, and I'm not going to cover it all. You can go back and listen to the Job study if you want to get a little bit more. But many things in these first few verses, or in the whole chapter, that answer the question, what is Leviathan? What is he, or who is he? Psalm 74 verse 13 tells us, You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Psalm 104 verse 25 says, There is the sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without number, animals both small and great. There are the ships that move along, and Leviathan, which you have formed to sport in it. Now, because of Psalm 104 and and other places, some suggest this is the massive blue whale, the biggest of all of God's creatures. Eight elephants could be lined up and stand on the back of a typical blue whale. An amazing creature, huge, massive creature, largest of all. But this cannot be the blue whale. Read on in verse 12. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his orderly frame. Who can strip off his outer armor? Who can come within his double mail? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth there is terror. Okay, well they're right there. A blue whale has no teeth. Got that. What's that stuff called? Anybody know? Baleen, is that right? Yeah, cool. So not teeth. His strong scales, verse 15, are his pride shut up as with a tight seal. No one is so near to another that, or one is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. Talking about these massive teeth, and some say that's a great description for a saltwater crocodile. So maybe it's not the blue whale after all. And of course, in the Mediterranean and in that region, and especially down in Egypt along the Nile, the saltwater croc—that would be a, a, a fierce beast can't be the saltwater crocodile either. Because as you read on in verse 18, it says his sneezes flash forth light. Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> be able to sneeze. Anyway. And his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils smoke goes forth as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. It's kind of like me after I have some of the rice that Anna Marie makes at home. 
She loves all things hot. This is my daughter. There's a dish that she makes. Even when it's cooking, my eyes are just burning. But that's not Leviathan either. (laughs) Verse 21 going on says, His breath kindles coals. And a flame goes forth from his mouth. In his neck lodges strength, and dismay leaps before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together, firm on him and immovable. His heart is as hard as a stone. Even as hard as a lower millstone. Here's a clue. The word millstone is literally brimstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty fear. Because of the crashing, they are bewildered. The sword that reaches him cannot avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He regards iron as straw, bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones are turned into stubble for him. Clubs are regarded as stubble. He laughs at the rattling of the javelin. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads out like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the depths boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a jar of ointment. Behind him he makes a wake to shine. One would think the deep to be gray-haired. Nothing on earth is like him. One made without fear. Verse 34, note this. He looks on everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. We're talking about Satan. The old dragon. The serpent. I believe that's exactly who Isaiah is talking about when he says the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, the twisted serpent, the dragon who lives in the sea. Interesting, when we study Job, we recognize something that uh, there are some scholars who are disappointed with the ending of the book. They come down to the end of the book and they say the problem is you never come back to the antagonist. The story starts as this epic confrontation between Satan and the Lord. The Lord actually draws it out of Satan. Satan comes up to present himself before the Lord in heaven. Did you know he still has access? At least he does for now. He won't always. But like all the sons of God, all the angels, all the created beings in the heavenly places, he has to answer. And Job chapter 1 and chapter 2 tells us he goes before the Lord. The Lord says, what are you doing? Walking about the earth, checking things out. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? God lures Satan into this confrontation, this epic battle that then continues to take place throughout the rest of the book of Job. And yet, after chapter 2, we never hear from Satan again. Never see him again. He's not mentioned another time. And so there are some scholars who are upset about that. They say, you know, there's no conclusion. There's no just conclusion. The Lord deals with Job. The book ends. What happens to Satan? Why doesn't he get his? You know, it's kind of like Mr. Potter in A Wonderful Life. Think about it. Doesn't that leave you a little unsatisfied? Oh, I know. It's great to sing Old Lang Syne with, with Jimmy Stewart, you know. But at the end of the movie... The evil villain still has his 8,000 bucks. Nobody catches him. He doesn't get in trouble. He still owns the bank. It's a little frustrating. Leaves me with less than a Merry Christmas, I can tell you. And same with the book of Job. No just conclusion. And yet here we have, at the end of Job, chapter 41, drawn with dragonish detail, this picture of Leviathan. 
And by the way, Leviathan will get his. Revelation 12.9 tells us the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan. Notice, dragon and serpent. Who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. That, my friends, is when he loses his access and when he's thrown down to the earth. And so back to Isaiah 27, verse 1, In that day the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. By the way, to make the devil flee, what do you do? James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It is that simple. We make it hard. I'm under attack! He's after me! I'm being oppressed! Resist! Resist the devil. When he realizes he cannot get to you, he leaves. Now, for a more opportune time, but he leaves. Resist him and he will flee. The fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisted serpent. What more twisted being has there ever been in the entire history of the world? And the dragon who lives in the sea. The dragon who lives in the sea. If Leviathan is Satan, what is this whole thing about the dragon who lives in the sea? Revelation 13 verse 1 says, The dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. And then John writes, I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. And the beast coming out of the sea, the representation there is the sea of humanity. Out of which we know Antichrist will rise, Satan-driven, and ultimately Satan-possessed. So the dragon who lives in the sea, the dragon who lives in the sea of humanity, making his way to and fro on the earth, like a roaring lion, seeking someone or seeking whoever he can devour. Well, that's Satan. So, Rick, you're saying that you believe Leviathan in Isaiah 27.1 is Satan. Hey, if the scales fit... <laughs> And also, note this, it fits the flow of the prophecy. It fits the flow of the little apocalypse. The fleeing, twisted serpent dragon is punished in verse 1. Okay, well, following what we understand of Revelation and the end times, the dragon is punished. What happens next? Verse 2. In that day, a vineyard of wine, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. I water it every moment so that no one will damage it. I guard it night and day. I have no wrath. Why does he not have any wrath? Because his wrath has already been spent. Should someone give me briars and thorns in battle, then I would step on them. I would burn them completely, which he does at the end of the millennial kingdom. End of Revelation chapter 20. There's a brief brief uprising. God puts it down like that. But he says, or let him, verse 5, rely on my protection. Let him make peace with me. Let him make peace with me. In the days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. Today, over half of the land of Israel is desert. Only 20% of the entire country is arable. That is useful for crops and and produce. And yet Israel produces 95% of its own food requirements. That's amazing. It is the number three exporter of fruit in the entire world. Little Israel with its 20% arable land. (laughs) 
They grow there over 40 different kinds of fruit, including citrus, which is their biggest export. Um, Oranges, grapefruits, tangerines. They also export the pomelite, a hybrid of grapefruit and a palmello that was developed there in Israel. They export avocados, bananas, apples, cherries, plums, nectarines, dates, strawberries, prickly pears, persimmons, pomegranates, and grapes. Forty different varieties of fruit shipped out from Israel every day. They're feeding. They they cover 95% there of of all their food comes from Israel, which is one of the reasons why I love going there, (laughs) because the food is so good. It's all grown there. And yet they're exporting number three in the whole world. It's just stunning to me. But it's just a Zionist movement, and God has nothing to do with the land. (laughs) Wow. Kathy DeGagna, a graphic designer for Bridges for Peace, wrote in the December 2011 edition of their publication, Dispatch Dispatch from Jerusalem. She wrote this. I want to read this to you. No other place on earth has quite the color and flair that Jerusalem does. And arguably, no other place in Jerusalem has quite the color and flair of Mahane Yehuda, Jerusalem's largest open-air market locally referred to as the Shuk. The Shuk. A gem in the golden setting of central Jerusalem, the Shuk dazzles with its feast of sights, sounds, smells, and tastes. The famous outdoor market bristles with activity daily, except for, of course, Shabbat. As vendors display their wares to shoppers from dawn till dusk and spice-laden fragrances permeate the alleyways. Tables are stacked with luscious produce, strawberries, pomegranates, tomatoes, mangoes, and melons, giant carrots, and grapes the size of small plums. Candy and nut shops. Vendors selling nothing but an infinite variety of halva, which is a confection made with crushed sesame seeds in all kinds of flavors. Clothing and housewares, falafel and shawarma stands, juice bars, bakeries and cafes, all can be found in the city blocks that comprise Jerusalem's amazing open-air market. Unlike the commonplace weekly trips to the neighborhood grocery store, (laughs) shopping at the Shuk is a remarkable feast for the senses. Those of you going to Israel, Sarah, we're going to the Shuk. All right? Going to get some fruit. I tell you all about this because, first of all, doesn't that just whet your appetite? I mean, I just sit here reading out, listing out fruit. I was typing this into my computer in, in study yesterday, just going, Do we have any bananas? <laughs> you know? Do we have any good oranges? It just sounds so good. What's the point of all this? Just to tease your taste buds? No. I want you to think back. We just read about an amazing, amazing prophecy. Verses 2 through 6 describing the vineyard. The vineyard of the Lord. But think back, when we studied Psalm, the, the Psalms, Psalm 80, Asaph wrote the Psalm of the vineyard. And if you go back to Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah wrote the parable of the vineyard. Both Psalm 80 and Isaiah 5 describe the land as a lush vineyard. The people as the choice vine of the Lord but a people who ended up producing sour, worthless grapes. Go back to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah 5 verse 1. Isaiah's parable of the vineyard. Listen to it. Tell me if it sounds familiar to you, even, even if you haven't read it recently. Isaiah 5 verse 1. Isaiah sings, Let me sing now for my 
well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. Wait a minute. Are we back in the song of songs here? Doesn't it sound like that? My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it. By the way, that would be Jerusalem. And he also hewed out a wine vat in it, and he expected it to produce good grapes. But it produced only worthless ones. Now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. What did Jesus say? That the uh, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot until the times of the Gentiles were complete. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. And so Psalm 80, Asaph said the same thing. Sang the song of the vineyard, and it parallels in a remarkable way Isaiah chapter 5. And here Isaiah sings the parable, the song of the vineyard, in beautiful description. Fast forward to Jesus, Matthew 21, and he tells the parable. We call it the parable of the landowner, but it's the same story with a few added characters to it. In Matthew 21, Jesus adds tenant farmers who would be the corrupt leadership of Israel. The tenant farmers who rented out the land from the landowner who's the Lord God of Israel. And Jesus said the landowner began sending his servants to these tenants who rented out the land, the leadership there, sending his servants to collect what was due to the landowner, to collect the rent, to collect the payment and and the produce of the land. But the tenants beat them and they stoned them and eventually they killed them. The servants being, Jesus says, the prophets. And eventually he sent his own son to collect payment, but they killed him. Foolishly, wickedly, the tenants in the parable thought, hey, we'll kill the son and then the land will be ours. And we can take control of it and we'll own it and it will be our inheritance. Jesus tells this parable in the presence of the Pharisees. Some of the most well-read men in all of Israel at the time. These guys knew the Word. Now, they may not have lived the Word, but they knew the Word. They had it down in their heads, and they could recall Psalm 80. If you said, what's Psalm 80? They'd say, the parable of the vineyard. What's Isaiah 5? The parable or the song of the vineyard. So they would know this, and Jesus starts telling this, and they'll go, oh, yeah, yeah, he's just borrowing off of... But as they start to listen, he's changing some things here. And he's indicated there were some tenants. And Jesus is speaking to these guys, and he says the following... Matthew 21, verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Uncomfortable question. Because they had to know, at least some of them, he's driving at us. But they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, and he will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus says, did you never read in the Scriptures... The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. 
This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing, listen, to a people producing the fruit of it. Biggest problem with the Pharisaical leadership in Israel in Jesus' day, no fruit. They rented out the land. They ruled the land. They were in charge, religiously speaking. No fruit. Now, does that mean that God was finished with the Jewish people? Not hardly. What it means is that another people was going to be called upon to produce fruit for the kingdom. A people who believe without seeing would over the years and over the decades and over the centuries be used by the Lord and by His Spirit to produce fruit for the kingdom. But don't miss that God's promise to to Israel remains firm. Just as we heard Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, crying out, Behold, Luke 13.35, Your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until, until He says, the time comes, listen, when you say... Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What does that mean? It means Jesus says there is a day coming when Israel will cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When there will be faith in Israel, faith in Jesus, and they will recognize him as Messiah. Matthew 19.28, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed Me in the regeneration, we read this on Sunday, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you shall also sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus indicating in the regeneration, in the coming millennial kingdom, it is Israel's kingdom. It is still Israel's kingdom that He will rule and reign over. And the apostles sitting on thrones with Him, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The twelve tribes of Israel is not the church. And anyone who would try to say it is the church, show me how. Show me where. It's not a single verse in all of Scripture that says the church is the new Israel. It doesn't exist. The Greek word there for regeneration, let me remind you, it is palingonesia, which is rebirth, renewal, restoration. And this is exactly what Isaiah prophesied here in Isaiah chapter 27. Second thing in our outline, the regeneration of the vineyard. Verses 2-6 through six are the regeneration of the vineyard. And it's a beautiful picture where the Lord says a vineyard of wine, sing of it, I the Lord am its keeper. I water it, I guard it, I have no wrath. As I said before, because His wrath has already been spent in that tribulation period. He says, let Him rely on my protection. Let Him make peace with me. Let Him, let him make peace with me. Because in those days to come, Judah or Jacob will take root, Israel will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. And he's not talking about right now. Yes, they're a massive exporter of fruit in the world. Yes, it's remarkable what the engineers and what the, the agriculturalists have done in the land. But that's not what Isaiah is talking about. Not yet. It will be far more amazing than this. Everything from the shuk to Israel's exports are not the regeneration, not yet. At best, they are simply indications of a future promise. But note this, in the middle of this, the Lord twice calls out, let Him make peace with me. Let Him make peace with me. And I heard over here, and I think it was Glenn, say, Shalom, Shalom. There it is, peace, peace. 
Think back to Sunday. If you didn't hear Sunday's teaching on Shalom, Shalom, back in chapter 26, verse 3, the Bible says the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace. In the Hebrew, that's Shalom, Shalom. The double portion of Shalom, peace squared. The perfect peace that the Lord will keep those in who are simply leaning into Him. That's what steadfast means. Trusting Him. Relying upon Him. And that's what the Lord is saying here. Let Him make peace with me. Let Him make peace with me. The regeneration of the vineyard. Zechariah says in Zechariah chapter 8, verse 12, For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give her fruit, and the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. That beautiful parable of the vineyard that is so tragic in Isaiah chapter 5, here in Isaiah 27, we see it come to literally fruition as the Lord brings it to bear in the world again. I just, I'm so impressed with God. And with His plan, and with the precision, the precision of all of His Word and how it, how it all comes together. Isaiah 57 verse 19. Isaiah will say, and this is the King James Version, it's a a spot on translation here. I create the fruit of lips, the Lord says. And then he says the following Shalom, shalom. To him that is far off, and to him that is near, saith the Lord, and I will heal him. The fruit of lips, he says. Shalom, shalom. Peace, peace, God says. The double portion. Man, just we need to sink into that. You know, I was thinking about the shuk today, and, and, and I'm going to be there and go there and, and just to walk those markets and smell those smells and be in the midst of all of that fruit. But more than that, to be in the midst of God's shalom, shalom. In the center of His peace. And I think we came up a little short on Sunday. And I'm not saying that The teaching from the Word wasn't right or we didn't cover it. Shalom, shalom. But here's where I think we came up short. We stopped at us. Let me say it more personally. I stopped at me. I was looking at it because I was in the midst of a hectic week. I want this peace, peace. I want shalom, shalom. And I asked you all, wouldn't you like to have shalom, shalom? Well, here's how you go about shalom, shalom. Steadfast of mind and trusting in the Lord. And we talked about that aspect of it. And truly, that is how we walk into peace. And we get covered all around with shalom, shalom. But but here's the thing. It is much bigger than personal peace of mind or personal peace of heart. Shalom, shalom is greater than that. Peace, peace is the seed of fruit. Peace is the seed of fruit, which is why I believe Shalom Shalom is right here in the middle of the vineyard parable, of the vineyard song. Where does the fruit come from? It comes from the peace. Just as we said on Sunday, it's grace, grace, and then peace, peace. You could add to it. It's grace that precedes peace, which precedes fruit. If you want to have peace, you've got to start with grace. But if you want to be productive as a follower of Jesus Christ, it comes from the place of shalom. Peace, peace. In other words, peace produces fruit. 
What did Jesus say to the pharisaical tenant farmers? He said, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. That's the point of the peace. The point of you having peace, of me having peace, is that we might be fruitful for the kingdom. Not that we might sit in our homes and go, I am in so much peace today. This is great. (laughs) Honey, pick up the kids. I'm at peace. You know? Peyton, take out the trash. I'm at peace. We might as well be sitting there in the lotus position going, Om. I'm serious. To think about, and this is a big problem that we have in the church, and this is a big problem that I have in my life. We take every single promise and everything the Word says and we go, it's all for me. Guess what? It is to regenerate me so that I can be all for Him. It's not about me. It's not about me finding peace so that I can sit in it. It is about me discovering, developing Him actually in me, developing that shalom, shalom, so that I then may go on to be fruitful. If we're just looking for our own peace, we will miss this. It's it's not just about getting myself a piece of fruit. It's about the fruit of peace. The fruit of peace. Peace with God produces fruit for God. Now let me give you some verses to back that up. Galatians 5.22 The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. It's right on the list. Hebrews 12.11 says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, it afterwards yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The fruit of righteousness is not, listen, the fruit of righteousness is not a fruit that you eat. It's a fruit for others to eat. It's a fruit for the world to see. As they walk through the market, uh, think about the shuk that I described to you. Walking through the market of the church, and there's all of this fruit, and the fragrance is amazing, and the spices, and, and this, they, if, if they were to walk into the barn, a non-believing person, would they smell the sweet fruit of righteousness? Or would they see a people who are no different than the rest of the world? If someone runs into you in the marketplace, in town, at work, when you're just out doing your thing, when you're not you know, with the collective Christian body, you're just on your own, is there the peaceful fruit of righteousness in your life? Where people go, what is that? I want some of that. Or they go, nah, it smells like me. <laughs> Doesn't smell any different than anything else. James writes, James 3.18, The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. True shalom, shalom will produce fruit. And if you're not seeing that peaceful fruit of righteousness in your life, if there's a dichotomy, if you will, between what you want to be and where you are, what you're hearing from the Lord and where you stand right now, if there's a difference there, the problem is very simply corrected. Because the problem is simply disconnection from the vine. All we need to be back in line to be producing fruit is to stay connected to the vine who is Jesus Christ. John 15, I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, 
He takes away. Let me just rock your theology for a minute. Jesus said, every branch in me. He didn't say every branch outside of me that does not bear fruit. He said, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. That sounds like He takes away those in the church who are not bearing fruit. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it out so that it may bear more fruit. So even if you're bearing fruit, guess what? Discipline's still going to come. Why? So you'll bear more. Jesus says, you're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Grace saves you. You're already clean. Don't worry about that. I'm not talking about your salvation, Jesus would say. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him. He bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. To be more fruitful for the kingdom, you don't need to sign up for another seminar. You need to spend time with Jesus. Just be in the vine. The more connected I am to Jesus on a daily basis, the more fruitful I am. The less connected, the less fruitful. It's, it's, a, it's as simple as that. Now, although Isaiah is standing on the precipice of the greatest production of fruitfulness in the history of Israel or the world, he looks back on what it took to get there. The pruning process, you might call it. Number three, the reckoning of Israel. The reckoning of Israel, verse 7. Like the striking of him who has struck them, has he struck them? Or like the slaughter of his slain, have they been slain? You contended with them by banishing them, by driving them away. With his fierce wind, he has expelled them on the day of the east wind. Now, the wording here is tricky. In fact, I wish the translators didn't do this, although it helps in other places. They added capital letters. And the Hebrew doesn't have capitals. Okay, And uh, that's why, even in the King James Version, a lot of times things just are not capitalized, other than, than specifically names. But verse 7 almost sounds contradictory. Look at it again. Like the striking of him who has struck them, has he struck them? Well, if him is God, capital H, then it seems like the answer would be, yeah. Like the striking of him who has struck them, has he struck them? Well, I guess if he's been striking, yeah. Because if God's going to strike, he ain't going to miss. But that shouldn't be capitalized. Or the slaughter of his slain. Have they been slain? You would think, yes, but no. The answer is no in both cases. What's this talking about here? More likely the first hymn would be the small letter H speaking of the enemies of God and Israel. The enemies. Like the striking of him who has struck them. Okay, Like, like the enemies have struck Israel. Has God struck Israel? Or like the the slaughter of his slain. Have they been slain? Has God done this? Is this how God deals with his people? That's what Isaiah is getting at here. Is this how God deals with his people? How he has dealt with Babylon? How he's going to deal or how he's going to deal with Babylon? How he's going to deal with Assyria? If I've lost you, let me explain. God has not dealt with Israel as he has dealt with other nations. With other nations, he has wiped them out. He has not wiped out Israel. Other nations God has caused to go extinct. 
Israel has only gone into exile. And that's what Isaiah is saying in these two verses. And again, it's kind of hard to get. But that's the explanation of it, that, that what's going on here is God exiled His people, but He did not extinguish His people. Israel was cast out. Israel was banished for a time in the diaspora. Verse 9. Therefore, through this, Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven. And this will be the full price of the pardoning of his sin. When he makes all the altar stones like pulverized chalk stones, when Asherim and incense altars will not stand. Now, another important verse to get. In the Hebrew, and you, you all just read verse 9 as I, I read through this and, and give you the Hebrew word for a couple of things here. It will, it will, I believe, come to light for you. Therefore, through this, Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven. The word is kafar, atoned for. Kafar, like Yom Kippur. Same word, same root word. Israel's iniquity will be atoned for, and this will be the full price of the pardoning of his sin. The word full price, it's one word, it's pari. In the Hebrew, it's fruit. And this will be the fruit of the pardoning of his sin. Now let me ask you a question. Is anybody saved by their works? Is anybody saved by going through just enough punishment to satisfy God? Now that would be Catholic theology. Right? But you got to go to purgatory. you got to pay a certain amount of dues. You know, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for you, but you still got to pay for something. Which, by the way, that's one of the biggest flaws to Catholic friends. That is one of the biggest flaws in Catholic theology right there. That the cross is insufficient. Purgatory states the cross is insufficient. I'm sorry, I cannot disagree more. The cross is completely sufficient, does everything necessary for all of my salvation, which is why Jesus, right before He died, cried out, Teleos! Or Tetelestai in the Greek. It is finished. Not, it is finished. And you're going to purgatory. And you're going to have to pay a little bit. No. So, there's a problem here, because if we're looking at it that way, their throat for, through this... Jacob's iniquity will will be forgiven. If through this, if the this there is speaking of him being struck, banished, driven out from the land, punished, how does that follow the doctrine of grace? How does that follow with Jesus? (laughs) Is he saying the reckoning of Israel is their banishment? God will banish, punish, and that way He'll reckon their sins and then they can go on into the kingdom? No, I don't believe so. Might there be something more that pays the full price producing the fruit of pardon? Note this, the very last line there, verse uh, 9, oh, halfway through. This will be the full price of the pardoning of His sin. The word for sin in the Hebrew is kata'ah. Gang, it is sin offering. This will be the full price of his pardon, the sin offering. You get what I'm saying? The pardon, the price that was paid, was paid by the sin offering of Jesus Christ on the cross, not by the diaspora, the dispersion. Not by the punishment. Not by the ills and the difficulties and hardships of Israel's past. That does not buy salvation. Only the cross. 
And the cross is the ultimate sin offering. It is the one offering that all the offerings of Israel point to is the cross. And it's perfectly placed, by the way, here in chapter 27. The reckoning of Israel is taken on the back of Jesus. Follow the flow here. There was the first striking of Israel, Assyria, Babylon, the first dispersion. Then there was a return to the land. The people of Judah came back from Babylonian captivity, not as a fruitful vineyard, but they did come back. And then there was a sin offering. The sin offering, Jesus at the cross. What happened after that? As Isaiah is looking back now and he's giving, this is the background, this is the lead up to the wonderful, fruitful vineyard. He's still looking back. That sin offering happened. And then what happened after that? The second striking of Israel, Rome overrunning Jerusalem, wiping it out in A.D. 70, right? Look at verse 10. For the fortified city is isolated. Fortified city is Jerusalem. Go back to verse 9 again. Let me read it through. Therefore, through this, Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven. And this will be the full price of the pardoning of his sin. Or the full price of his pardon, the full fruit of his pardon, the sin offering. When he makes all the altar stones like pulverized chalk stones, and that's speaking of false idols and altars, it's all wiped out. Once Jesus died on the cross, there was no payment. There was no other altar. There was nothing else. And the Asherim and incense altars will not stand. For the fortified city is isolated. This is Jerusalem. A homestead forlorn and forsaken like the desert. There the calf will graze. And there it will lie down and feed on its branches. When its limbs are dry, they are broken off. Women come and make a fire with them. For they are not a people of discernment. Therefore their maker will not have compassion on them, and their creator will not be gracious to them. The fortified city, Jerusalem, wiped out. Jesus said in Luke 21-24, they will fall by the edge of the sword, they'll be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Interesting, Tim prayed tonight and he said that, you know, prayed for the group going to Israel and mentioned, you know, going into what is not a very pleasant place. And I got to tell you, and I know exactly what you're praying and, and thank you for that. But something in my heart went, well, it's pleasant for me. But you're right. It's a hot spot. It is the center of, of world crisis. It is the reason for all of the fighting and, and bickering and terrorism and everything and the wars going on in the world. But when I go to Jerusalem, Brian, doesn't it feel like the pleasant land? Spencer, would you call it the pleasant land? Oh yeah. It's remarkable how being there, even with the threats all around, you just you just like wow. And the Bible calls it the pleasant land. But Rome came in and wiped out the pleasant land, and it was not pleasant. For nearly 1,800 years, Jerusalem was forlorn. Not just 70 years. You know, the people taken into Babylonian captivity, and then 70 years later, they they made their way back, and they rebuilt and reestablished and resettled and everything. But after AD 70, it it was waylaid. And it would continue to be wiped out and torn down. I mean, that's the history of the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was forlorn. I I saw a picture last time we were there. I'm going to look for it this time, see if I can find it. 
a picture that shows Jerusalem in the late 1700s, I believe it was. You wouldn't even recognize it. I mean, it's just weeds and cattle. You can see the Temple Mount, and you, you, I mean, you can see the topography of it, but it just looked nothing like it looks today. But 1,800 years, it was rubble. A scrawny, you know, Bedouin cattle and goats grazing among rubble of poor homes. And, and it just was not a pretty place. I've told you many times before, Mark Twain traveled the land in the early or in the mid-1800s and he said, it's a God-forsaken wasteland. It's not the Israel I go to today. Things are changing. The Lord is at work in the land. But Isaiah... He looks beyond the years. And what he's just done here so far in chapter 27, he, he begins saying, the enemy's going to get punished. It's going to happen. And once that happens, oh, the land, the land is going to be that fruitful vineyard. Sing of the vine, a vineyard of wine. Sing of it. And he's looking at it and he can see through prophetic vision the wonder of Israel completely restored. But then he backs up from there. A little closer to his own time, but not his own time. He looks and he says, but what's it going to take to get from where we are here to that vineyard. It's going to take a sin offering. And after that sin offering, the fortified city will be isolated. It will be forlorn. It will be waylaid. And like I just said, 1,800 years, it was. And it seemed that their Maker has no compassion. It seems that the God of Israel doesn't care. There are many people in Israel who right now say, we're alone in this world. We've got to take out the nuclear reactors because if we don't, no one else will. We've got to protect ourselves because if we don't, no one else will. And the heart of Israel has yet to turn back to her God in full. Verse 12. In that day, the Lord will start His threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt. Now, hold it right there. From the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, which is the Nile. Does that sound familiar? Isaiah has just referenced the exact land geography that God promised to Abraham. The full land that He promised. Not what Solomon held. All of it. Genesis 15-18, The Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt, the Nile, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So that was the land mass that God says, This is yours, Abraham. I'm going to give it to you and your descendants and it will be an everlasting inheritance of theirs. 300,000 square miles. And you Bible students know under Solomon at the height of his kingdom they only held 30,000 square miles. 10% of God's promise. And here Isaiah. I love this. In that day he'll start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt. He's threshing. It's now his threshing floor. And he says, you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. This is number four, by the way, in our outline. Did I ever give you number three? The reck- yeah, reckoning of Israel, number four. The regathering of Israel. Listen again to how Isaiah said it. One by one. That's like picking fruit. Like hand-picked pieces of fruit after the shaking of the vines, the shakings of the tree, after that's over. He's going to gather them up one by one, the sons of Israel. Okay, well, how do we know he's not just talking about that return of Judah out of Babylonian captivity? As some people claim. 
Oh, that's not, no, that's not talking about some end times thing. That already happened, they like to say. It happened when the Jews came back from Babylon to Judah. How do we know he's not talking about that? Two reasons. Number one, the shofar is blown. The shofar is blown. Shofar as Egypt and Assyria. <laughs> Verse 13, it will come about also in that day that a great trumpet, and the word trumpet there is shofar, will be blown. And those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and those who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. He doesn't even mention Babylon, by the way, there. Did you notice that? He simply mentions Assyria and Egypt as pictures of enemies, oppressors of Israel, but leaves Babylon out. Isaiah, why did you leave Babylon out? I think he's making it clear that we're not talking about the return from Babylon. We're talking about a much greater return. Egypt, a picture of returning from the south and from the west. Assyria, a picture of returning from the north and from the east. The return to the land in the regathering of Israel. The shofar is blown. But gang, there's something else to note here. And Isaiah is very clear about this. His prophecy here is connected with an earlier prophecy about not only the shofar being blown, but about the second recovery. The second recovery. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11. It will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with His hand the remnant of His people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamat, and from the islands of the sea. In Isaiah 11.11, he blows away the idea that all of the Messianic prophecies were fulfilled, or at least the regathering of Israel back to the land, was fulfilled when they came back from Babylon. No, he says there will be a second one. The return from Babylon was the first return to the land. There will be a second. And I believe that it began in the late 1800s. At least the ground is being broken up prepared as people from Jewish people from all over the world are beginning well not beginning they're flooding back into the land they're all headed back and once in the land as all this starts to break loose as we have read and studied so much about the time at the end the hand picking begins God begins to pick up pieces of fruit fruitful fruitful Jews those who will come to faith in Jesus and they will At least a third will. The regathering of Israel. So you see how that flows? From the time of the sin offering, Jerusalem is destroyed. The whole place is waylaid, it's flattened. But then, God will start to regather. He will start to pick up pieces of fruit. He'll start to put it all together. He will start to bring His people back into the land. And then it says, those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and who were scattered in the land of Egypt, they will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem, homecoming to the vineyard of the Lord. Wonderful. You know, Israel was handpicked by God in the first place. The chosen people. God picked them out of all the people of the world. He picked Abraham. And He picked Isaac. And He picked Jacob. And down through that line, He picked them. That His Son would come and bear fruit for the world. The fruit of salvation. The fruit of righteousness. The fruit of shalom. Shalom. 
He handpicked Israel in the first place, and the remnant of Israel will be handpicked again on that marvelous day. But let me finish with this question for you. Isn't it great to know that you've been handpicked? You all, listen, you have all been handpicked by the Lord. Chosen by Him. From the foundations of the world. Predestined by Him to be fruitful ones. Wait, 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 Rick. You going Calvinist on us? No, I'm not. Listen, how, how do I know that I am chosen by God? Choose Him. Choose Him and you are chosen. Okay? It does not take away my free will for God to have known before the foundations of the world that I was going to choose Him. He knew. And so you can say, He chose me because He knew I was going to choose Him. He saw, that's the sovereignty of God coming right up face to face with and working with the free will of man. Yes, we have free will. God does not take that from you. But He knows. Gang, if you're walking in Christ tonight, He picked you because you picked Him. But being handpicked by the Lord means something marvelous. Jesus said in John 10.28, I gave eternal life to them and they will never perish perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You try and get this, this fruit out of my hand. No one's going to get them out of my hand. My Father, John 10.29, who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. He's got you. You've been handpicked. Just as Israel is handpicked, just as everybody who makes a choice for Jesus Christ is handpicked to be with Him through all eternity. How do I get into that? (laughs) Make peace with God through the sin offering of Jesus Christ. And you have been chosen. If you've done that, brothers and sisters, I leave you with this final word. Bear the fruit of peace. Man, if you have shalom, shalom by Jesus Christ, let it work out of your life For others' sake. Be fruitful for other people's sake. Fruitfulness for the kingdom. That others might know the shalom, shalom that you yourself know. For as Paul said, Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Amen? Paul, let's bow. Father God, you are a remarkable vine dresser. And Jesus, You are the vine. And we as branches of Yours, we pray asking that we might bear fruit for the Kingdom. And Father, Lord, forgive me for stopping short, for coming up a little bit short on Sunday. I I didn't see it. The very fact that we have peace that we might bear fruit. And not fruit for us to sit around in our fellowship and eat while the world goes to hell in a handbasket. Father, may we bear fruit for a starving world around us. The fruit of righteousness, the fruit of peace, the fruit of joy, all of these things that are of your Holy Spirit. The fruit of life in Christ Jesus. Father, may we always be carrying around fruit to offer to hungry souls that they might, like we, Father, be picked by you. In Jesus' name.